she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do, know, do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you, had, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, happy Easter again. I'm going to try this. Feel free to say the response with me. It's not projected for you, but I think we can get it. North Cross, church, friends, family, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Well, it's an honor to stand before you and with you and open the scriptures up together. And um, if you're new to North Cross Church, as Dean said earlier, we'd like to especially welcome you. Uh, maybe you can stay with us and, and, and stand outside together with us after the service. Um, and if you, uh, all of you, if you're new or familiar, um, it's just great to be able to worship with you on a Sunday uh, like this. Well, today is Easter Sunday. It's when the Christian church around the world and across time has annually celebrated that morning of Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, proving that he is man and God and that he came to rescue us from our sins, from ourselves and from death itself. And our passage this morning in John's Gospel, chapter 20, explains why Jesus' resurrection and all it means matters. Why it matters so very much, so very personally. But let's prepare our hearts and minds for this passage with prayer. Would you pray with me and for our time and God's words to us this morning. Father, um, it is a privilege and a gift uh, to be here together, to open your words and to remember, to remember never to forget, to perhaps know for the first time that you are risen, you're risen indeed. And I pray that your resurrection would mean more, even more to us by looking at this passage. Lord, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts with this message. Would you cut us to the quick? Lord, would you become more real, more believable, and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, even as you're high and lifted up? We ask that you'd be with my words, but most importantly, would you be with your words? And would you not leave us the same by them? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think about a person or a moment 
when you felt really understood, totally and truly recognized, seen by someone in a way that you wish you saw yourself. When I was a college minister, I had a student that once described a person. It was her grandfather and how he would scrape a slightly blackened sirloin steak off the grill and scoot it on piping hot onto a plate with a look and a smile she missed and still chased long after he had passed away. The writer Frederick Beekner describes a moment when a man he didn't know well, a man named Lou, when Lou traveled 800 miles just to come and be with him in a dark time in Beekner's life, when his daughter was sick and he was sick with worry for her. Frederick Beekner confesses, I don't think anything we found to say to each other amounted to very much. I don't remember even spending much time talking about my trouble with him. We just took a couple of walks, had a meal or two together, and smoked our pipes. I drove him around to see some of the New England countryside, and that was about it. But I believe that for a time, a little time, we both of us touched the hem of Christ's garment. I know that for a little time, we both of us were healed. Although there's a lot of speculation inside and outside the church, the Bible doesn't actually say that much about Mary Magdalene. Most of us, most of what we know about Mary Magdalene occurs in the last three days of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But it might actually help us to ask this question. Why was she there? Why was she the first on the scene at what everyone thought were Jesus' last days? Chapter eight of Luke's gospel tells us why. Soon afterwards, he, Jesus, went through the cities and villages of Galilee, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. I don't think Easter Sunday is the time to digress into the nature of supernatural evil and demonology. But we can at least say, before Jesus came to town, Mary Magdalene was suffering something terrible. Emotionally, mentally, physically, and just spiritually, a suffering that we're told is multiplied by seven. And Jesus was that person, and Jesus' coming was that moment when Mary felt really understood, truly and totally recognized, seen by Jesus in a way that she wished she saw herself, and healed by Jesus, healed in a way that she never thought possible. It seemed like a crazy, audacious, unbelievably generous love that would cause Jesus to go to such extreme lengths for the joy of having her. She knew she wasn't much worth having, and yet for the joy set before him, Jesus chose to love her and to heal her, even though such actions would eventually cost Jesus his life. And it was because Mary Magdalene had tasted this kind of relationship that she took Jesus' death so hard, weeping outside the tomb. And Jesus, when he appears to Mary in that garden, his life and his words promise something unspeakably better than she'd even experienced. Jesus is no longer just a teacher, no longer just even a friend. Verse 13, he's a brother 
who shares God the Father and God's unconditional and unquenchable love. So John chapter 20, verses 10 through 18, show us that Jesus' resurrection makes a very personal difference. Believing in Jesus' resurrection makes each of us loved by God just like Jesus as God's child. And like no other, God's fatherly love soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fears. And this alone leads to a long-lasting trust and praise and obedience. Through Mary Magdalene's encounter with the resurrected Christ, we're invited into God's fatherly love to lean into it, to live by it in three simple ways. First, verses 10 through 11, invite us into experiencing God's love by getting sad and mad with the world. Second, verses 12 through 15, invite us into this love of God by asking questions, especially about ourselves. And third and finally, in verses 16 through 17, we're invited to let Jesus' love carry us away towards God and towards others. These verses and points, along with any longer quotes I use, will be projected behind me or in your bulletin um, that you can find. So let's begin with verses 10 and 11 and how and why we can get sad and mad at this world. Verse 10 comes at the end of a series of events. Early that first Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene and a few other women discovered the rock rolled away from Jesus's tomb. Mary Magdalene suspected the worst and ran to get help. Two other followers of Jesus, Simon, Peter, and John, raced to the tomb and saw no body. Two other followers of Jesus, these Simon and Peter, at least of those two, John saw and believed Jesus is God rose from the dead. Then both John and Peter, the disciples, went back to their homes in or near Jerusalem. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. In a garden, verse 11. Most commentators agree that Mary Magdalene is alone at this point. She's by herself. The other woman has left. Simon and Peter had left, but Mary stayed right there. In other words, Mary was lingering on purpose to see for herself and to mourn a while. And we can tell from the Greek word used for weeping here that Mary started to ugly cry. Klao in the original Greek means to loudly and uncontrollably sob, to, to gush bitter tears out of every hole in your face. Mary Magdalene is really sad and she's really mad but what's so sad and what's so angry to be about? What is, what's, so, what's she so sad and angry about? To answer this question, we have to dip into Mary's own words in response to the angel's question and to Jesus's question in verses 13 and 15 later in the passage. There we get a sense of what's so upsetting to Mary. Mary sees the rock rolled away and the empty tomb in verse 11, and she thinks someone has stolen Jesus's body. And doing this to a loved one's body is awful, but especially in the first century. Then and there, it would have been despicable. Not even tomb robbers took bodies. And it would have been intolerably tragic for what it does to the deceased person, but also what it does to the survivors left to mourn 
They wanted to mourn that person well. In fact, snatching away a dead body was so tragic, there's even a famous Greek tragedy based almost solely on this premise of a missing body. It's called Antigone. But Mary Magdalene wasn't just sad or angry about missing Jesus's body. This Mary missed Jesus, what Jesus alone did for her while he lived. I like the way that Colin McCann reimagines Jesus with a Mary Magdalene-like figure in his novel, Let the Great World Spin. Jesus had really listened to Mary Magdalene. He knew the glossy photo of the castle she cut out of a magazine and scotch taped to the wall above her bed. And every day he'd come to Mary with a cup of coffee and a promise. He was getting that castle ready, getting it ready for her, just wait. And in that castle, there are many rooms. He was getting the moat just right and the chains that go onto the gate of the bridge and the banquet all squared away wine and lots of good food and lots of dancing. And so Mary Magdalene was loudly wailing by that empty tomb because Jesus had left her, left her by herself. And she's not so sure there is a castle or a way to get to that castle. And Mary Magdalene is weeping and we are sad and angry with her about how life can be unfair how things like death and a pandemic can take friends and take parents and take children, how even the threat of death has taken opportunities and dignity and hopes and life away. Death takes and it takes and it takes. Maybe you're just not sure why you're here this morning. You were invited or it kind of seemed like the right thing to do on Easter Sunday. <laughs> but you have a lot of questions for God about why the world's like this. Where's God in the crack house? Where's God in the working poor's medical bills? Where's God in your family's unhappiness and dysfunction? I have a friend, Sammy Rhodes, and Sammy talks about how one of the first things that drew him to Jesus was he felt like Jesus might know what to do with his tears. Many of us, especially men, don't know how to cry it out. Confession. And all of us don't know how to take in death and the way it just takes and takes. But Sammy's right. Jesus knows how to cry and Jesus knows how to take in death. Jesus is well acquainted with crying it out. Jesus weeps about his friend Lazarus, Lazarus' death at another tomb. And in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus weeps about his own death to the point of tears. Excuse me, blood even, bloody tears. Jesus' tears tell us he can handle our tears. His resurrected life tells us he can handle death. The empty tomb proves death didn't take away his life. His life took away death. Jesus' new life takes on his own death and his new life takes on the death of anyone who believes in him. But before we get into the fully good news part, let me just say it again. It's okay to get sad and angry. It's good to revisit those painful moments weeping outside the tomb. It's good to ask 
what are those moments in our lives when we almost said out loud, life can never be the same. But when you go there, bring Jesus with you in prayer. Jesus knows what to do in those moments. In verses 12 through 15, the angels, then Jesus, continue with the good questions. <laughs> we begin by asking, when has life been hard? And they ask Mary and us in that garden, why is life so hard? And even how does Jesus' resurrected life speak into our tears? And so we move into our text's second invitation to experience God by asking questions. Verse 12 shares what Mary saw in that tomb of Jesus. Two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This would have been a stunning sight. Angels robed in a dazzling, almost blinding white and a dark hollow of rock. And they sat in a particular way. Like the Jewish temple seraphim at each end of the mercy seat the place where the high priests offer the blood to atone for ancient Israel's sins. But Mary doesn't quite take in that grand moment with all its impressive symbolism. And so the angels ask Mary a gentle but challenging question, why are you weeping? That is, don't you get it? Jesus is not in the tomb because he's risen just like he promised. Yet Mary's reply is so telling. Why am I weeping? Why am I weeping? Because they have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they put him. You see, Mary Magdalene is focused, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose, fixated on just one thing. The prize to be near Jesus, even if it's just his flesh and blood dead body. And in the midst of this impasse, of this mutual misunderstanding, Mary hears the whirring and the buzzing of a weed whacker just outside the tomb. <laughs> Let's put this, keep putting this scene in 21st century Lake Norman. <laughs> there Jesus is with his saggy cargo pants, his wraparound sunglasses, and his old t-shirt tucked into the back of a hat to keep the sun off of his neck. Jesus is dressed like a landscaper, and he cuts the power to his weed whacker, and he pulls off his battered black Bluetooth headphones and tosses a fully loaded question towards Mary. Woman, or ma'am, ma'am, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Verse 15. Yes, Jesus' appearance is unrecognizable, whether by supernatural interference or maybe just Mary can't see him through the tears. The shock and the agony but his second question is a giveaway. In the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' primary and repeated question. Whom are you seeking over and over and over again? We see it, these are the first recorded words of Jesus to his first disciples in the very beginning of John's Gospel. It's the same question he just asked in the Garden of Gethsemane at his arrest. Whom are you seeking? But Mary doesn't, Mary doesn't take Jesus' tell, and instead she doubles down. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Verse 15 again. You see, just like in the Garden of Eden and moments like Mary at Jesus' tomb and moments like this Easter Sunday, God compassionately is asking us, where are you? 
where are you? And so often we respond with, no, God, where are you? It's significant that our tears and our fears, it's significant that our expectations and assumptions, that these can blind us to the God standing right in front of us, speaking through the words of his Bible, whipping through the white caps out at Lake Norman, touching us through the sticky hand of a three-year-old pressed to our cheek saying, mama, you're special, or I love you, Gramps. Sitting with us side by side in a sanctuary, crouching knee to knee, Christian near strangers, praying for a miracle in a living room. So it's worth getting honest about how hard it can be to see Jesus, intellectually and emotionally. In his book, The Last Word, there's an American philosopher named Thomas Nagel. And Thomas Nagel wrote about how we know what we know. That's called epistemology. And in this process, he makes a confession. This very dense academic book, he makes a confession. It's so personal. We all fear religion. We all fear religion. Here's what he means. I'm going to quote here. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. I'm curious whether there's anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. What Nagel is trying to say here is, yes, there are emotional and psychological reasons for people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But there are also perhaps stronger emotional and psychological reasons for people to not believe Jesus rose from the dead. Reasons like losing control over how we get to live our lives or how our lives will end up. Even social reasons like Jesus dressing up like a Jewish rabbi and preaching in a formal synagogue and at the same time dressing down like a landscaper in a garden with its share of weeds. He identifies with the white and the blue collar folks. He's with the East and the West Coast elites as well as the middle Americans. The sum of these loaded reasons can cause Christians to doubt and non-Christians alike to shout, where are you now, God? I don't know where Jesus is. I can't find him. But notice in verses 16 through 18, Jesus answers the question and the grief behind it. And his answer is our third and final invitation to experience God by letting Jesus' love carry us towards God and towards others. Jesus first answers the question, where are you, God, with just one word. He speaks our names. Look at verse 16. There Jesus says, Miriam, or Mary. And in that pregnant pause, as Jesus of Nazareth's sound waves hit Mary Magdalene's eardrum, Mary hears so very much. She recognizes the voice, the unique way that Jesus always pronounced her name. And it makes me think of my dad's voice when he picks up the phone when I call home, how I can hear his voice change in recognition through all the fiber optic cables and cell towers. The affection is what I feel. Sid, how's it going, bud? 
In one word, Jesus is both comforting and gently joking with her. Jesus is saying to her tears, Sid, I know, I know. And he's saying to our fears, come on, Sid, it's me. I love the way that Vito Ayuto and his wife, Monique, and the band Welcome Wagon sing this moment in the garden. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me, within my heart, it's ringing. Within my heart, it's ringing. Within my heart, it's ringing. It's like Annie Dillard once wrote, I've been my whole life a bell, but I never knew until that moment I was lifted up and struck. Struck by my name on Jesus' lips. And Mary responds to the sweet internal resonance, the ringing vibrations within. She turns and she cries out, my teacher. And then she falls to the ground and she clings to Jesus' knees. When Mary Magdalene sees Jesus as he is, she praises him as she should. Do you let Jesus' love do this to you? What are those moments in, your, in our lives of sweet, soul-rippling joy? Those moments when we almost said out loud, life can never be the same again. But when you go there, when you revisit those moments or when they are visited upon you, bring Jesus with you in prayer. Jesus knows what to do with those kind of tears too. But Jesus isn't done. Mary, and we still don't fully get it, as the theologian D.A. Carson puts it, grand as Mary's devotion was, her estimate of Jesus was still far too small. Jesus is more than a teacher somehow not actually dead. He's a risen older brother, the best possible older brother. Because Jesus is no longer just Jesus's, or God is no longer just Jesus's father, he's also Mary's father in heaven too. And God is the father for anyone who believes in their heart, Jesus was raised from the dead. And this means we don't need to cling to Jesus's flesh and blood body. Jesus, Mary here is clinging because she's thinking, I've lost you once and I'll never ever let you go again. But Jesus is saying to Mary, Mary, I'm not going anywhere. I've conquered death. You don't have to hold on to me. I'm holding on to you. This relationship isn't up to you. You don't have to worry about this anymore. I'm ascending. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Anyone who believes in Jesus' resurrection doesn't have to worry because Jesus has told us, my father is your father. My God is your God. And this means that we have the same exact relationship with the living Lord of the universe that Jesus does. We're no longer primarily God's servants. We don't have to obey out of fear of punishment. We're no longer primarily God's disciples or students even. We don't have to obey out of shame of ignorance or guilt about fault bad grades. We're no longer primarily God's friends even. We don't have to obey to keep the relationship going. We are primarily God's children, his precious sons and his precious daughters. We get to obey out of gratitude and joy and God's unconditional and unquenchable love. For some of us, this truth is astoundingly new. Yeah. 
For others of us, it might feel worn and familiar. So let me see if I can't ground this truth in a moment where I felt really understood, truly recognized, seen as I wished I saw myself and my God. I share this story with permission. A few years ago, one of my daughters was getting wild at bedtime for yet another night in a row. So I had to go upstairs and have a talk with her to tell her she'd lost a privilege the next dessert and put her and her stuffies in my bed in my bedroom. And as I was tucking this daughter in again, I could tell she was really discouraged with herself, disappointed by losing dessert. And she was sad and maybe a bit angry. But as I turned to walk out of the room, I heard her mutter out loud something to herself. And I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I turned real fast and I barked at her. What was that? I thought she'd talk back to me. Instead, she quietly confessed she had said aloud, but I can't lose daddy love. But I can't lose daddy love. I said, daddy love? And she explained that she could lose dessert or a bunch of other privileges, but she was telling herself she could never lose daddy love. We both smiled, I hugged her, I said, nope, no matter what you do, you can never ever lose daddy love. I will always love you, no matter what. And this is what Jesus is telling Mary Magdalene and each of us this morning. I want you to know, no matter what you do or how badly you feel, you just can't lose daddy love. It's just not your love to give. It's just not your love to lose. It's God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Do you know, do I know that we can never ever lose God's daddy love? Do we realize that's what made Mary run? Run so fast back to tell the others that she didn't even feel like her feet hit the ground. She just had to tell the others. She just had to tell everyone. You can't lose it. Have you heard of it? God's daddy love. And they said, how? Why? What do you mean? And this is what she told them. I have seen the Lord. He is risen. Risen indeed. And I say to you and to me, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, thank you for these words to us. This reminder of an old, old truth that was new that first Easter morning. Father, that you would help us to live in that, that moment, especially when we feel like we've lost everything or losing things or losing ourselves or losing you. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that you're that kind of God of unquenchable and everlasting love, that you and Jesus Christ conquered death and rose again. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.